Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Azzurri fan. The greatest Italian performance in a decade was followed by a pretty good run in the football to complete the ultimate Euros double. Maneskin brought Eurovision home, while Mancini brought football Rome. We relive the final, and I do my best to sound happy about it. Plus civilised beers, our Scudetto, and the usual Serie A roundup on this season finale of Scudetto. Hello and welcome to Scudetto. So I'm going to be doing my best not to take away from the celebratory tone of tonight's podcast. Obviously, there is a reason that I've been allowed back on the pod. So let me just say right at the top of the show, Italy 100% deserved the win. I'm very happy for most of the players and some, many, I'll say many of the fans. Uh, and it's only taken... <laughs> Excluding myself and Boaz. Yeah. Is that... No. <laughs> it's only taken me four days to be able to admit it. But yeah, let, let's let's save all that. We'll get into it in a bit. Can I just say we we did a very good job at not gloating too much. You have to you have to admit you did you did indeed. I, I'll give you that. Some very even-handed comments on our WhatsApp group. But yeah, let let's get all in, into it shortly. How are you guys getting on, Kenny? How's your week going? Yeah, good, good. I got my uh, my second vaccination today so i am fully vaxxed up and uh, ready for for the reopening and uh yeah i've been trying trying not to as boaz said trying not to to gloat but yeah very very happy obviously with the the result from the weekend so it's been a good week yeah yeah how about yourself yeah i've had sort of obviously in many ways an opposite week to you kenny and the football didn't go the way that i was hoping and uh the COVID didn't go the way that I was hoping because I was exposed to a COVID case and I've been in quarantine. I don't actually have COVID myself. I've tested negative, but um, you may notice my audio quality is back to how it was a few weeks ago. And that's because my main microphone is not with me. Uh, so sad times. But anyway, um, you've got a beer there to share with us. I do have a beer. You Fans of the pod might might remember the infamous disco forklift truck uh well the drygate brewing company who makes disco forklift truck evidently brought out a special edition for the euros and being a scottish based brewery they they rebranded they saw a marketing opportunity they seized it and they rebranded their beer as yes sir i can boogie <laughs> forklift truck uh mango pale ale it's it tastes exactly the same as it did when it had a different label on it but yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm drinking, just to see out the euros. Does it taste a little bit sweeter after Sunday? Well, I mean, <laughs> in honesty, if we're if we're talking about Scotland's performance, then uh, <laughs> kind of to be to be expected, I think. Yeah, fair enough. It, it's what I expected. Some some decent performances, but ultimately, uh, yeah. Same beer, same football from Scotland. <laughs> same, same. Yeah. Fair enough, Boaz. How about you? How how did you enjoy the week? 
Um, again, in a mad attempt not to continue gloating, I, I've had a fantastic week and occasionally I've been out and about and suddenly remember that, wow, Italy just won the Euro and I kind of crack a big smile. People must think I'm a little bit crazy on the street, but that's fine. Good stuff. Um, and are you celebrating tonight with a special beer? So yeah, I've got two beers up for, uh, well, two drinks up in my lineup. One is a beer that came out just as Corona kicked off and it's called... Uh, it's tr- roughly translated as everything's going to be all right. And it's a uh, blonde ale. It's got nice like um, balloons on it. So it's it's supposed to bring good vibe. And, and another beer is, well, I can't even say, I, I can't even know. I don't know if we can call this a beer, but it's something I accidentally picked up in one of my beer runs. And it's um, more mojo is a magic voodoo talisman in a can. A lucky charm full of blood orange and refreshing acidity. I don't know what this is going to taste like, but it's going to be interesting. Interesting, indeed. What, what's the uh, ABV on that? Um, just a 4.3, so um, a little bit disappointing for me, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'll survive. Yeah. I've not done too well on the beer front. Um, being in quarantine, alcohol's a little bit limited. I, w- I was drinking an Aperol Spritz um, a minute ago, so that's quite surprised. Nice. Yeah. Were you not able to source some Peroni or some still, uh, Nastro Azzurro out there? Well, actually, um, my father-in-law came to the cabin on the night of the game, uh, like before it was played on the night of the final. And he had two multi-packs of beer in his hand. And one of them was a Finnish six-pack. And he was like, this is if England win. And the other one was like a Finnish eight-pack. But it's like this Sandel thing, which looks sort of vaguely kind of Southern European in the packaging. I'm sure it's also a Finnish beer. And he was like, uh, yeah, this is this is if England lose. I think the main point was just that there were more of them. <laughs> but uh, both of those packs have been consumed since the final. So not In the one night. In the one night. <laughs> yeah, at least within a couple of days. Anyway, yeah, let's uh let's chat about the game. Let's let's kind of get into it. Um I've already said at the, the very top of the pod I politely deserved it. I, I did think on kind of first viewing that maybe England had the better chances, even though they didn't really control the game. Uh, but Buzz directed me to the XG, which kind of firmly disproved that notion. Uh, but just kind of watching the game, Kenny, what was your overall take? You said that you were terrified during the actual game. Um, <laughs> yeah, I spent most of the knockout phases of this tournament just terrified. Uh, <laughs> um, look, I thought it was... I thought in some ways it was kind of like the reverse of the Spain game, actually, in that um, what Italy obviously went in, in front in that game and uh, Spain equalized. That was the same here. But Italy had to do a lot of defending and uh, kind of playing on the break uh, against Spain. That was the same here for for England. I thought, I mean, England kind of came out of the traps really, really well. Uh, first 15 minutes, it wasn't just sort of an early goal and then, you know, everyone behind the ball. First 15 minutes, I thought England could have been further ahead, actually. Uh, they had another really, really dangerous breakaway. Uh, we were discussing it before we recorded. I think it was Sterling who, who cut in and, yeah, didn't didn't actually come to anything. I thought Italy kind of grew into the game after that. I guess the, first, the the opening goal was like, understandably, in the final of a major tournament, very unsettling. It's your worst nightmare. Um, but after sort of 15 minutes, they kind of settled, started growing into the game. I didn't actually think that Italy, for all of their, you know, even for the end of the first half, for all of their sort of dominance of possession and probably territorially as well, 
Uh, I didn't really think they created that many sort of clear-cut chances in that in that first half. Uh, second half was a bit of a, a different story, really. But yeah, I mean, uh, it ended up being a scrambled goal, didn't it? And it kind of felt like maybe that was how it was going to come from a set piece, as it did uh, from second, third ball from from a set piece. Yeah, I thought England defended, and this isn't to belittle England's performance at all, because it was the way they were set up. They had a game plan that I thought they executed very well, which was that they were just very, very difficult to, to break down. And they defended very, very well. And I thought they looked very dangerous on, on the break. I actually felt like at times, yeah, England were just as likely to get a second on the break as, as Italy were to score. Having said that, it does. I do think it's fair to say that Italy kind of controlled the tempo of the game. Italy dominated possession. In term, in pure like footballing terms, Italy were probably the, the the better team. But I thought it was a great final. I thought it was a great final, and I think I mean what what drama to to win a tournament on on penalties. Italy have obviously been there before, mm. um, but what a horrible way to to lose it as well. It's just yeah, yeah, it was the finest of margins. It was really on a knife edge. Yeah, interesting that you say England. You thought England had a game plan and stuck to it because I thought their game plan was kind of a bit ruined by scoring so early. They they they'd kind of planned to sit deep and then maybe try and spring an attack kind of later on in the game, maybe like they did against Germany. And scoring early kind of put them on. Obviously, you always you want to score a goal early. Like when you go for it, it was like watching Tottenham score a goal early when you know like they don't have really the quality or the experience to be able to hold on to a lead like that. And they're actually much better uh, when they need to chase a game. But I don't know. What did you make of it, Buzz? Sort of tactically, what did you make of the subs? So I, I felt that um, Southgate's uh, initial ploy of uh, bringing Trippier into the pitch, uh, into the team on the right w- was a stroke of genius and that obviously it paid dividends almost immediately with Shaw's goal. But also, as Kenny mentioned just there, there was a couple of other occasions that uh, uh, Italy were kind of left exposed by England's wide players. But as the game proceeded, England dropped further and further into defense. And what for me was uh, very reassuring as an Italy fan was that even when uh, the few times when England were able to steal possession from the likes of Verratti or Insigne, they uh, they were very quick at playing the ball, and they didn't really. They weren't. It looked like they were kind of almost panicking. And uh, a lot of time, I remember quite a few occasions where Maguire just hit the ball out into row Z when maybe trying to pick out uh, Harry Kane up front or something like that would have helped. I think uh, at the end of the day, whether Italy were one nil down or if whether it was nil nil. Italy's game plan didn't change at all, and um, and that meant uh, attacking with almost five players, with uh, Emerson joining the attack, and kind of a, a very very offensive Italy that maybe people are not so used to nowadays. And I think something that is uh, slightly overlooked is that yes, this uh, Southgate uh, defensive change was, as I said, a stroke of genius because it uh, it did cause Italy some trouble. But it's in, it's interesting that um, in almost every phase of this tournament, teams have changed their natural way of playing to counter something that Italy do. So Spain did it by taking out their striker and playing a false nine. And in this case, England went from a back three to a back uh, from a back four to a back three, essentially. But it's also happened throughout the tournament. So th- this is further testament to an Italy yeah. side who are sticking to their guns and playing football, quote unquote, the right way. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of a fair point. I think Southgate actually said before the tournament that he was going to play a back three against the. Uh, I did, I can't remember the phrasing he used, but it was something like the more elite teams or the more difficult teams. Uh, so it wasn't just for Italy. I think they played that against Germany also. But Kenny, you wanted to come in on that one. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually we've we've spoken quite a bit about about England, but I wanted to kind of just to add to what I was saying before about um, Italy's control and I mean what Boaz spoke as well about Italy being you know on the front foot and being very offensive. I think so much of that was done to the work that Verratti and uh, Jorginho did. I thought they as a pairing were absolutely fantastic, uh, and they were kind of at the heart of of everything that, that Italy did and Chiesa as well uh, just uh, I mean the guy at time and time again we've been saying it he is a big game player mm-hmm. and he was like absolutely the sort of main thorn in in England's side so uh, I just didn't want to yeah, I just didn't want to move past the, yeah. the actual sort of analysis no, of the game without pointing that out that's completely fair and those Italian midfielders absolutely ran the England midfield ragged, didn't they? I mean, Declan Rice, who was actually having a great game, I thought was just—he was having a great game, but he was everywhere. He was—he uh, was just stretched too thin. And um, when he came off, obviously that kind of dominance only increased. I kind of understand why England set up the way they did, and it was kind of uh, natural for them to drop deeper and deeper. But I can't help but think that in years to come, when they when you look at the statistics and that. Essentially, they had a home tournament and definitely a home final. And uh, the, the opposing team had a 66% possession and completed almost uh, twice as many uh, passes. I think Italy had 800 and something passes to England's 400 and something. So, I mean, it, this is obviously a Serie A-focused slash Italy-focused podcast. But I think there will be some regrets uh, on uh, the England in the England side simply because uh, there's a feeling that they didn't, once they got the goal, they, they kind of... Uh, didn't battle for it anymore. Yeah, definitely. I think um, that was definitely the feeling that I was left with. That they can see they they scored too early and uh, they tried to sit on a lead when really, if they'd continued to chase it, then who knows what could have happened. I'm not saying that they would have won if we, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to backseat manage Southgate and say if you'd brought Grealish on earlier, then <laughs> then it could have all been different. But I think definitely if they'd attacked the game as they did in the first 15 minutes for. An extended period, it could have been different. I think Gabriele Marcotti is, uh, was quoted on Italian radio as saying that in 10 years' time, kids will be asking their, their parents or whatever, hey, is it true that uh, we, we got to a, Euro- a European final and we hardly played Sancho, we hardly played Rashford, we hardly played uh, who's Foden? These are probably generational talents and I think maybe uh, Southgate's uh, conservatism versus an Italy squad that, at least on paper, isn't as accomplished came back and cost England. Yeah, definitely a fair analysis. Uh, we should probably talk about the more controversial instance that uh, took place towards the end of the game. Um, lots of England fans felt aggrieved by Chiellini grabbing Saka's shirt, which kind of caught him around the neck on the on a counter-attack towards the end of the 90. Uh, I mean, he was booked for it. It's difficult to imagine how that could be a red card under the rules, but obviously lots of people felt aggrieved by it uh anything more to say sorry for inter- i think pe- i think it's mostly people who don't watch football who felt <laughs> aggrieved by this or, or at least people who don't regularly watch football and i mean i guess with the 
national uh, with the media building up such a national furor behind this this team any any small uh, infringement against the england heroes would be seen as a as a travesty so i i think yeah. that so much is made of this foul that i it's really not such a big deal but perhaps the Jorginho foul is one that should be spoken about more yeah i mean absolutely that killing one is a textbook yellow it's a textbook yellow there's yeah, I mean, if you can point me to the rule by which he should have been sent off, then I, I will stand corrected. But I mean, I for me, it's not it's not a clear goal scoring opportunity because he's on the halfway line. It's not. I mean, come on, are you seriously telling me that by pulling his shirt, regardless of how high it is, that it was endangering an opponent? I mean, I I don't buy that. It was a, it was a yellow card. But as Boaz said, the Jorginho one. I think was uh, ascending. I thought Jorginho was very lucky. Uh, it does have to be said that Grealish made a miraculous recovery after sort of <laughs> writhing around on the floor for about ten seconds, and then was jogging jogging away. The dark arts. Afterwards. The dark yeah. arts. These, these Italians, they're just they keep doing. <laughs> they so they roll around for hours. But yeah, I mean, Jorginho, just the way he went in, I mean, he, he was kind of over the ball studs. I mean, not studs showing in the, you know, the studs weren't up, but it was kind of, it, it was over the ball and it was a stamp. Studs and exposed. Made contact. Studs <laughs> exposed, yeah. I think it was, for me, he was very lucky to to stay on the on the pitch. But I think by that point, there was five minutes or so of the second half of extra time left. So... Whether England would have had the energy, I guess one thing to say that I felt that England did finish the extra time, the stronger of the two, possibly because Italy had taken off a lot of their um, sort of superstars by that point. But yeah, uh, I thought he was lucky to, to get away with that. But I'm not sure that it would have really affected, you know, the match going to penalties given how late it happened. True, maybe whoever. Um, replaced him in the shootout would have scored as well so we wouldn't have even had well yeah. exactly he didn't well, even score his penalty so. this is after i praised him last week <laughs> i said he was ice cold and that he knew months in advance where he was taking the penalty but clearly pickford knew as well yeah maybe that was the mistake he made he made a record of it that was discovered by pickford's team so uh, since we're talking about uh, penalties i think this is a gr- great segue i'm sorry for stealing your segue trick oscar but it's a good segue to say that Italy had have had much like England their own penalty woes for several years. Um, they lost on the first four occasions they ever had penalties in uh, Italy nineteen ninety four ninety eight two thousand eight and two thousand sixteen. But uh, Italy have now kind of won five of the last uh, seven kickoffs uh, penalty kicks they've been involved with, and um, so they've now almost balanced that out their record and also uh they're the first team in the euro or the the first team in the euro or the world cup to win back-to-back penalty kicks so um that's quite a good record and something that i found really interesting was that every single italy player who took a penalty in the back-to-back games took their penalty to the exact opposite side where they took their previous penalty so if you remember Jorginho's glorious goal against spain was to the right whereas his miss was to the left I think that's quite uh, ingenious although obviously it didn't really work out for in Jorginho. <laughs> yeah I mean could there be another factor involved in these recent penalty shootouts bars that enables Italy to do so well in them I don't know like is is there somebody involved in stopping the opponent's penalties maybe <laughs> hint hint <laughs> you're alluding to the fact that 
Chiellini confirmed that he, he shouted what he's calling a cursed word at uh, Saka as he was preparing to take the final penalty. Apparently, he shouted the name of the name Kirichoko, who was a Estudiantes fan who just was a, a lot of bad luck for his team. And eventually, the team's manager decided that this bloke should sit in the away end. And miraculously, this team won the won the mm-hmm. league that season. So uh, yeah, apparently, apparently, Spain used this when they won their own penalty kick oh, against okay. Italy. Yeah, I mean, interesting anecdote. Not what I was referring to, of course. Um, I think there might be someone else involved in in stopping the opposition goals, like a, a goalkeeper, perhaps. <laughs> well, I suppose you're um, referring to Italy's uh, European Cup winning goalkeeper and uh, recent PSG signee Gigi Donnarumma, who um, not only saved two penalties but kind of psyched Rashford out, and uh, also gave me a small heart attack because. Uh, I, I was I was counting the penalties. I'm like, okay, this guy's missed. I'm sure we've won this tournament now. But Gijo was looking so ice cold. And, of course, he confirmed to the media later that he had no idea that the tournament was won. And until the cameras panned out to Mancini, I, I was I was really confused. I was, I, I, was lo- I knew we'd won, but, we, but he didn't. Yeah. Either way, when you're facing a 1-meter one, a one 96 tree in front of you, the goal suddenly becomes very small. Yeah, and I think credit should go to both goalkeepers in that shootout, actually, because um, Pickford also made a couple of very good saves, the Jorginho one that we already mentioned, and um, obviously the losing keeper never gets credit, but I think he, uh, he did well. I have to say that I've, I was, I've been quite critical of Pickford in this tournament, and I think that um, sometimes he's a bit jittery and that he, he kind of transmits uh, a little bit of insecurity to his central defenders. Apart from the fact that him and Maguire seem to really hate each other, but um, in that penalty shootout, and actually in the final as a whole, he he made some important saves. Yeah. Um, anything else to add on the shootout, Kenny? No, I mean I was yeah I was convinced again uh, as the the Spain game for some reason I was convinced that this one wasn't going to go Italy's way. <laughs> what is there to say? I mean it, yeah. it wasn't the greatest penalty shootout. Uh, I felt I really really felt for the the uh, England players who who missed, which is very weird because I was very much supporting Italy and actually let you in a little secret, had uh, ha- had some money on Italy to win the tournament. So by all rights, I should have been uh, dancing around, <laughs> which I was I was later on. Um, but I yeah, I felt felt very bad for, for Rashford when, when he kind of hit the post. I thought, oh, Rashford, why, why does it have to be you kind of thing? Obviously yeah, yeah. wanted Italy to win, but it would have, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I have to say, like last thing to to mention on the shootout, and we won't dwell on this because there's obviously been a lot about it on various channels over the last few days. But as you guys know, I was obviously disappointed when England lost. I, w- I was supporting them, but I wasn't really like devastated. I was much more upset the next morning to read that those three guys that missed had received like torrents of racial abuse on social media. I'm just like, for f- fuck's sake, like again. It's, it just makes this makes England so hard to support when you uh, realize you're kind of sharing your your support of that team with uh, with people that do stuff like that. So yeah, just just thought it was important to mention. But um, yeah, and very depressing. Just disappointing yeah. and depressing. But yeah, I have to say here in the UK though the the response aside from the the government, which I think you you get to, uh, but the response in general has been uh, has been great to that i think uh, people have really rallied around the team the team have rallied around each other so 
maybe something good can come from what is a, an absolutely abhorrent thing to, to have happened. Well, hopefully. Um, we should, yeah, just move move on. Just to bring it back to Italy, um, there, there are some parallels with this tournament and Italy's only other Euro Cup win back in 68, when, when uh, in the 66 World Cup, Italy had a disaster and lost to, South, to North Korea, amongst uh, other things. And it's generally considered one of Italy's worst tournaments ever. And then to come back and uh, win it a few years later it has some strange parallels to the fact that um, Italy didn't uh, qualify for the World Cup. And it was seen as a disaster. Although, if we look at it a little bit uh, through a, a slightly closer lens, Italy, Italy finished... Uh, Second in the group to a very good Spain side, and by by drawing away and 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 losing it uh, losing away and drawing at home or something like that, and then um, kind of lost to an organized uh, Sweden side without Ventura at the at the helm back then. They probably would have made that World Cup as well. But in any case, this is kind of a nice uh, renaissance of uh, the Italian football, and that's also how it's being labeled by a lot of the media back home. And uh, last thing is that uh, this. Uh, tournament was uh, notoriously lacking in um, drama or kind of rivalries within the squad. Uh, even in 2006, when Italy did win the tournament, there was always a kind of a debate. Should Totti play, even though he's slightly injured? Should Del Piero play? Throughout my time supporting Italy, there's always been this kind of dilemma about uh, a tricortista, a striker. There's always someone who's a big name left out. Mancini himself is uh, is a victim of this and didn't make the... 94 World Cup, but also Beppe Signori, who we've mentioned on this pod. So um, it's this this uh, Italy side was uh, refreshingly drama-free, and some of the players who came off the bench, uh, Pessina is one that comes to mind, did their job very well, but also players who started the tournament, like Locatelli and Berardi, had absolutely no problem in taking a step back and helping the club when they were needed. Yeah, and should mention uh, four out of the 11 players in the UEFA team of the tournament were uh, Serie A players, second only to the Premier League. If it hadn't been for uh, your boy Gigi's big move to PSG... Gone uh, to a smaller league. <laughs> perhaps, then uh, <laughs> they, would have, they would have been, I think, level with the Premier League. So, Yeah. Yeah. That's, speaking of Serie A, let's just do a quick roundup from the league's news. So, not Serie A news anymore, but former Serie A clubs, Kiev and Novara, are about to be declared bankrupt, and it's considered that they might be excluded from the league. So, obviously, bad news. Don't want to see that kind of thing, and uh, hopefully no ramifications in the top flight in Serie A. So, uh, Musa Barrow has COVID, Bologna's Musa Barrow. Rodrigo De Paul has formalized his transfer to Atletico Madrid. And Felipe Anderson is back to Lazio from West Ham after his uh, stint at West Ham. And elsewhere, uh, Inter's Jao Mario confirms his move to Benfica. And uh, you guys in Milan have signed Giroud bars. Um, finally, the fixtures are out. So traditionally a big day. We've discussed before that um, the fixtures are no longer symmetrical which um, I incorrectly explained before. It means if you play somebody in the first game at home, you don't play them first away. So the mirror, in a, in a sense, goes between Christmas and August. The only rule is that you can't play the same club within eight matches from one another. So I don't know. I didn't see what the calendar spat out today. But in theory, you could have a Milan Inter on the first day of the season and then have it again on the ninth. 
I think the calendar spat out a tasty uh, encounter between Juventus and Milan on the third game of the season. So looking forward to that one. Nice, tasty. We'll definitely discuss that in our season preview in more detail. Um, yeah, and final piece of news. Italy, who obviously won the European Championship, Argentina won the Copa America, and uh, they're going to play a friendly in Naples in honour of our boy Diego. Looking forward to that. And we are on the 15th day of the month, but we passed the first episode of the month during the tournament. So we're going to do now our Scudetto. Final Scudetto of the season. The final Scudetto of the season, indeed. (laughs) So first from a long-time listener and our biggest fan, Frank. He's got two questions. Who's the bigger loss for their respective side, Conte for Inter or De Paul for Udinese? I think De Paul is going to be a bigger loss for Udinese simply because he was uh, he is such an outstanding player and he was by miles their best player. Whereas a club should uh, recover from the loss of uh, a manager. Of course, Conte is a, is a winner, as we've said time and time again. But Simone Inzaghi is, is a good manager, and, and if Simone Inzaghi flops, um, I'm sure that at some point they will appoint another great manager. Mm. whereas Udinese will find it a bit hard to replace a player of that caliber. Yeah, and worth noting as well that they've lost one of the most sought-after goalkeepers, which we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks back as well, um, Musso obviously going to, to Atalanta. So those are arguably two really difficult to replace players. Yeah. And yeah, um, we'll see. I mean, I'd be tempted to say Conte, but it's more for just what it represents that maybe mm. the owners are in some financial difficulties and... The ramifications yeah. on the club will be Akimi. wider. Exactly. I mean, we could we can talk about the yeah the wider department. There's also rumours now that Barella is attracting the attention of Serie A of um, sorry Premier League clubs, mm-hmm. which makes our tweet after he scored against Belgium all that sweeter when we, when we wrote um, World Meet Nicolo Barella. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but but yeah, I mean Ericsson as well. The, the, I think there were there's a lot of work for Simone Inzaghi to do. So I, I'm I'm torn on this one, to be honest. Well, we'll call it a tie in that case. <laughs> um, and the other question that Frank has is, which manager are you looking forward to seeing the most at their new club? Uh, for him, it's uh, Juric at Torino. I don't think Juric at Torino is a bad shout at all. I'm yeah looking forward to seeing Allegri back at Juve. Um, and obviously Sarri at Lazio be fascinating to see their transformation. There's just so many, so many interesting ones. Those would be the three probably that I'd highlight. And obviously you've got Saint Zaghi as well. Inter, interesting to see what the, what they will have in terms of a sort of a title defense. I'm really looking forward to Spalletti at uh, Napoli because he's by all counts he's a bit of a weirdo and his social media <laughs> presence is also very odd. And um, I, I just think it's going to be fireworks with him and De Laurentiis. As I thought you were about to say, then uh, Gattuso at Fiorentina, but just <laughs> based on your experience. Well, also, actually, <laughs> Fiorentina is a good shout because uh, Vincenzo Italiano, yeah. aka Vinny Italian, likes to play a very attacking type of football. And uh, maybe Fiorentina fans will finally get to enjoy their team after a few seasons of lackluster football. Okay, let's uh, answer the next question. So uh, Tifosi Danande is saying that there was an assumption pre-Euros that this would be the last time we'd ever see Chiellini and Bonucci together for the Azzurri. But the World Cup's only next winter. So do they go around again? Or should they uh, quit while they're on top? What do you think, Paz? Should they go around again? I mean, the 
Should they? Of course they should. They showed uh, they were brilliant in this tournament. I think they were. No one ever got past them once, and Italy only conceded ten shots on target throughout the whole tournament. And uh, I mean, their understanding on and off the pitch, you you can't buy that. But at the same time, should uh, one of them, especially Chiellini, who's getting on with his age a little bit, choose to retire, then I think Italy are n- not in a bad position in as a in the centre back uh, spot. There's uh, Acerbi, who's He's not spring chicken, but he's a really good defender. And there is Bastoni, who I think is going to be an Italy defender for many, many years to come. Yeah. And uh, while we're on Italian defenders, let's answer Six Aside Gaussio's question. Uh, Where would you rank Chiellini amongst the best Italian defenders of all time, Kenny? So it's a really tricky one, but um, he's up there, isn't he? What what I would say is that I would rate, as Boaz just alluded to, I'd rate this defensive uh, pairing as being up there with the you know with the the very the very best i mean it's kind of reminiscent of uh nesta and cannavaro really but uh i mean for me so there are a few famous italian center bets are a little bit before my time um who you know i haven't seen in honesty i haven't seen much of uh, playing so you're like shirea gentile even like Trapattoni and Cesare Maldini, etc. So let's talk about in our lifetime. And for me, growing up... Don't I mean, betray your age, Kenny. <laughs> if, if we're talking about like defenders rather than centre-backs, then I'm sorry, but Paolo Maldini and probably second place Franco Baresi, I don't think anyone's touching those guys for, for a long time. And also Nesta as well who, you know, was an absolute Rolls-Royce of a, a defender for, for me. But, I mean, when you look at other sort of top, top great Italian defenders of, of my lifetime, so with Bergomi, Tassotti, and uh, Cannavaro, I'm not sure. I mean, he's in the same he's in the same sort of discussion, let's say. I, I, I would kind of put him top 10, maybe, but... Um, I, I don't see him being, you know, of the same caliber of a Maldini or a Baresi. I mean, those guys were just absolute, you know, best defense, not best Italian defenders of all time. And Maldini, for me, is the best defender of my life that I've seen in my lifetime. So it's not like anything negative against Chiellini. He's had a fantastic career, a wonderful, wonderful defender. And that pairing with Bonucci is just as Boaz said, the chemistry, the, the the way they know each other inside out, inside out, is phenomenal. So maybe maybe top ten, if that answers the question. Maybe not top sort of five. Um, I'd probably have Cannavaro above him as well. Okay, uh, Boaz, any advance on top ten? I'd I'd probably place Kilini uh, more or less in the same spot. I think um, having captained Italy to a major tournament does place him in uh, in the folklore next to Cannavaro, who I think I rate him a little bit higher than Kenny does. But maybe that's mostly because uh, he was so outstanding in that 2006 tournament. I couldn't, dis- I couldn't agree more about uh, Maldini being the, the prototype of a modern defender and just a outstanding player on the pitch and I, I guess now off the pitch as well. But uh, again, I think... Chiellini has really benefited from how social media ready this tournament was and how there was lots of uh, footage of him getting on with his business on and off the pitch and just how relaxed the man was throughout. I mean, there's a video that we've been sharing and we'll probably tweet it out uh, tomorrow as well, but of uh, him meeting uh, Maguire just before the the final. And 
he's like he comes up to big man <laughs> he's just like yeah, gives nice. him a huge hug and then he's like all smiles and we mentioned him like kind of uh harassing Jordi Alba in the Spain semi-final <laughs> just uh a, a, to- a real character all around and I, th- I think I think he's been a a revelation in this tournament for this reason as much as any yeah thank you both for your answers uh we've got just four more questions from two more contributors uh Milan obsession wants to know so there are m- many fines that are imposed by UEFA and uh, they go towards building football uh Hungary and England were both sanctioned by UEFA during this tournament for fan behavior uh do we think that UEFA will finally invest in meaningful ways of fighting racism like and her suggestions are improving stadium security media sanctions social media punishments what do you think I would think that the fines need to be far bigger for this if they want it to have any effect. Uh, they, th- there need to be like proper fines that are actually going to hurt the, the nations or clubs uh, involved. There need to be stadium sanctions. If this doesn't stop, then... I mean, it's ridiculous. The, and unfortunately, in Italy, uh, there's a situation where sometimes the players have to take it upon themselves to kind of pretty much pick up the ball and, and walk off. Uh, and we've spoken many times about Balotelli on this uh, on this podcast. And for me, he didn't even necessarily, at times, receive support from teammates that he should have received in that. So I think there's a lot beyond just purely sort of reinvesting the money. I think the punitive things need to, they need to say, look, we're serious about this. And for me, when you're finding an, organization that plays pays its players millions of euros a year when you're finding them like tens of thousands of euros i mean get real you know what 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 what's that going to do there needs to be big bigger fines and if the if it's persistent then unfortunately you need to start closing sections of the stadium if that continues to happen then it needs to be like a, a black if you want to stamp it out if you're serious about this then you need to make it known that you're serious would be my take yeah definitely couldn't agree more with that um and another question from from Milan obsession okay so we we mentioned earlier that uh argentina are likely to face italy in a friendly in napoli obviously Milan obsession says this is a, a game that fans would want to see but her question is at what point do fifa and other associations stop adding games to the fixture list not only for the health of players, but also aren't they hitting a revenue ceiling? Specifically for this match in question, I think it, in theory it's a friendly, so it, it will just um, pick up a spot that another friendly would have taken in uh, the Azzurri calendar. But uh, as a bigger question of um, oversaturation of football, but also too many games being played, I think the in the long run what will happen is that uh, um, UEFA, FIFA, etc. will... Uh, assign a month or a month and a half period in the middle of the season where all the national team games will be played. And I think that will also be a good uh, revenue spinner. But uh, in in theory, that will mean that the, the national team games will be condensed and that uh, there will be fewer games overall throughout the season and therefore players will be able to rest more. I'm not sure how far away this thing is, but I, I'm sure that it, it's already been talked of after the positive experience of the Nations League last summer. 
Yeah, I, the one thing that I would say is that there seems to be pressure from all sides for for more games. Uh, UEFA has reformed the Champions League for there to be more games. Uh, they want there to be more international games. I think it's a perfectly fair call. Um, it, it, I mean, we've seen it's particularly obvious at the moment because we've just come out of the pandemic where football stopped as everything in the world stopped for, for months um, and we've been playing catch-up. But I'm just going to keep banging the drum of get rid of pointless uh, tertiary domestic trophies. There isn't, as far as I'm aware, one um, in in most countries, but certainly... In uh, I think in in France and obviously in England and in Scotland there are things like the League Cups, which, to be honest, I mean that would be an obvious one to to do away with. And I would say get get away get rid of things like second leg competitions in in domestic cups, make it pure knockout, conference like league. football. Well, I mean that's that, well that's that's the thing. I mean somewhere that there has to be cuts because. Um, we've, we we see the pressure that's taking on players. We can, without even turning to you know the more serious cases like uh, you know questions raised around the Christian Eriksen situation, etc. But even just the sheer number of injuries. I mean, we saw like we we've seen a huge number of uh, injuries kind of towards the end of of the season and even in the Euros. I, I do think that it's a very fair point that somewhere. They need to cut games if they're going to add more. And I think we've reached that point now. I'd also be a big proponent of um, reducing Serie A, which is our our league that we talk about, down to 18 teams, but also other leagues. I think 20 teams is a bit too much. And often, uh, at least the bottom two clubs in the past few seasons have seemed to just be there to make the numbers. Yeah, and uh, speaking of making up the numbers, uh, brings us neatly onto our next question from Sigmund, who asks, why do we see first-team players in Serie A with ridiculously high squad numbers? For example, Donnarumma played with 99. Kessie's been playing with 79. Uh, what is there any particular reason for this, Kess, uh, Boaz? I mean, the two Milan players highlighted, so I'm coming to you. You mean one former Milan player and a Milan player. But uh, <laughs> I believe uh, Gigi Donnarumma wears the 99 because that's the year of his birth. And uh, often in Italy, you, you will see players wearing a number that represents the year of their birth. For example, El Sharawi had the 92 famously. Um, Candreva plays with 88, I believe. And there's 87, a, I think. Maybe 89. Anyways, he plays with a, a, an 80 plus number. And there is a few others. Uh, another, uh, I think, uh, infamous case was Ivan Zamorano, who wore the one plus eight <laughs> shirt um, since uh, his favorite number nine shirt was handed to O Phenomenal. Um, you also mentioned Kessie there specifically, and I think uh, that's quite an interesting one. He he, uh, his favorite number is actually the number nineteen, and he was assigned this number when he moved to Milan. But then Milan signed Bonucci, and we all know how well that went. But Anyway, Bonucci was rapidly assigned the number 19 and Kessie was left with only the 79 shirt as the number that had a nine in it that he could take. And uh, he actually quite, he was quite sweet. And he said that he has no intention in ever changing his number because people have already purchased uh, the shirt with uh, his name on the back and he doesn't want them to have to pay for another shirt, which I'm sure the club is not too happy with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, and just back on the, the topic of the national team, uh, for Sigmund's other question, is 
we've all seen in the Euros that Immobile doesn't work as a centre forward in the Italy team. I think maybe a bit harsh, but um, <laughs> <laughs> well, the question is, what do you think about future spro- prospects for that position? So um, I think I do think that uh, the centre forward position is a slight problem position for Italy, but Italy won the Euros, so I wish we everyone had these kind of problems. But and Immobile did get two goals and an assist um, in the group stages. So overall, he did contribute to this win. But at times, it did feel like he was kind of a foreign object to the tactics the Azzurri approached. Um, there's a few uh, very uh, promising strikers could potentially fill the role within the next uh, year and a half for Qatar. There's Skamaka who. Um, He's been banging them in for the under-21 and had a very good season this season until his dad's wrecked the, the Roma changing ground. <laughs> um, and um, there's Zaniolo as well, who's not an out-and-out striker, but Italy showed against England that they can play with a so-called false nine and that um, that they, they can have like three rapid players interchanging and it, the, the tactics, it's actually almost better suited for the tra- tactics. Am I missing anyone out, Kenny? I mean, Raspadori would be the one that I would, uh, I would say, uh, yeah, he's he's definitely someone who has bags of talent. The question would be, you know, whether he'll be at that level in time in a year and a half. Uh, obviously, Sassuolo have had well, the Zerbi's left. It looks like Locatelli's going. It looks like Boga's gone. So whether whether he'll be playing in a team next season that will, you know enable him to kind of kick on is yet to to be seen but i do think that there are, i mean it's one problem position it is a problem position it they have struggled to to fill it but there is that there are potentials coming through i would say yeah definitely uh thanks for that uh, that's all of the questions that we received this week uh please do send in more for our scudetto at the beginning of the next season that's all we've really got time for this evening. Let's just wrap it up with a few honourable and dishonourable mentions. Uh, Boaz, do you want to take the lead on this? Am I reading this correctly, that you're giving an honourable mention to Inter Milan? Yeah, I feel slightly dirty but for saying this, but um, I'm actually quite fond of the snakeskin Inter Milan top that was uh, announced this week on social media. It might be the fact that it doesn't have a sponsor on it, which is always kind of romantic, but also as a kind of a one-off shirt to celebrate their uh, championship win, it works for me. And it it does kind of still represent their colors as opposed to some of the weird shirts they were showing towards the end of last season. Yeah, it's, it's fair to give them an honorable given how many dishonorables we've given their uh, various kit designs and uh, marketing campaigns over the last year. Um, it's an upgrade on a tablecloth. <laughs> that way. <laughs> Indeed. What was it? Um, Kandinsky's Kandinsky on getting diarrhea oh, yeah. or something like that. <laughs> Food poisoning. Food poisoning. Correct. Yeah. More tastefully put. <laughs> uh, anyway, you wanted to give a dishonorable Kenny to uh, Luis Alberto. Yeah, Luis Alberto's obviously got a uh, history of being outspoken. Uh, obviously, famously when Lazio Lazio's owner Lotito got the the team uh, a plane. He he said it would have been nicer if he just paid the players. Um, but this on this occasion, he's making his statement by um, yeah he didn't show up to to preseason training. I believe today on the day we recorded, Lazio are saying that he's he's turned up quite a few days late. 
uh, various reasons that I'd read. The, the initial ones I'd read was that he was looking to kind of secure a contract that was, you know, in keeping with the highest earners at the club. I think there are a couple of players who earned considerably more, um, but also reports that he was just trying to force a move away. Either either way, I mean, I kind of feel like this is, I don't know, it feels unprofessional to me just like to not turn up to training. I think there are ways to go about things and uh, Luis Alberto likes to kind of go rogue once in a while. Yeah, and uh, speaking of players that didn't turn up, uh, the stage was set, obviously, for Messi's triumphant arrival in Napoli this summer. We've been promoting it through the Messi to Napoli hashtag, and uh, he signed a new contract to Barcelona, so dishonorable. Just selfish. It is selfish, indeed. <laughs> um, Kenny, you wanted to give a, an honorable mention to some of his uh, countrymen. Yes, how could I not? Uh, so Argentina obviously won the Copa America. I'm just giving a very, very quick honorable to the players who were in the starting eleven of that Argentina team that defeated Brazil 1-0. Um, Rodrigo de Paul, who obviously is no longer a Serie A player, but was at the time still formally. Uh, but Romero of Atalanta and obviously Lautaro Martinez of, of Inter as well. And yeah, for for, uh, for winning the Copa America, for getting Messi his first major trophy in the Argentina shirt as well. Yeah, uh, well-deserved honourables for all of those boys. Um, I'm just going to give a quick honourable. We, we we spoke briefly about this earlier in the programme, but just for Harry Kane, uh, for giving as a serious, or going in two-footed, should we say, on the, the fans that, or fans loosely, term fans loosely use, the, the people that gave racist abuse towards the uh, England penalty takers, Harry Kane saying, "These people are not fans. We don't want you." Actually, a much more um, a much more serious and aggressive statement than the Prime Minister could manage. So, uh, an honourable mention to him for that. And, guys, you wanted to give a, a, a serious honourable as well. Yeah, in amongst uh, all the celebrations for the Euro, um, Davide Astori of Fiorentina was not forgotten. Of course, he was a part of this squad, and he was friends with a lot of the players. And um, as soon as they they landed back in Italy, they said that uh, this cup is dedicated to his memory. Yeah. Um, and just for a complete change of tone, I just wanted to uh, highlight a moment that was uh, reported after the Italian victory. Di Lorenzo lighting up a cigarette in the uh, changing room after the cup win. Fair play. Give you an honourable for that. Is that an honourable, is it? <laughs> I, think, I think it's an honourable. Health it's and like safety. People an always... honourable for thug life. Yeah, people always like um, reminisce about the old stadiums that you could smoke in. So I think uh, <laughs> Di Lorenzo is just reclaiming the new one. So it's an honourable. <laughs> um, but as you wanted to give a dishonourable to some of the celebrations that were taking place, though. Yeah, there's a bit of a standoff between the prefecture of Rome and uh, and the Fijici because apparently um, the Fijici had agreed not to hold the open top bus parade through Rome. And um, I mean, this is something that this whole final was a bit weird to me because in my mind, we're still in the COVID age and yet the stadium was packed. And then uh, you see like Italy driving through an open top bus through thousands of people. And um, I'm sure that the the results will be seen in a week or two, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. 
But let me let me latch on to that one quickly and just give a quick honorable to um I mentioned the parade and I mentioned the um the players dedicating it to a story, but something that has to be mentioned is Barella showing up pissed for this meeting, wearing sunglasses <laughs> and like holding a can of beer in his hand. And like <laughs> the guy is like a young guy and everyone he's obviously had a big night and he was hungover and like I I I'm sure he was still smelling of booze. Yeah. I was going to say, um, we've got all the serious stuff out of the way. I'll give you one more honorable each, um, just in celebration. But as you've jumped the gun, so you, you can have one more. Uh, getting you on a staff, giving one to Bonucci and Chiellini. Yeah, I was re- reading today that Bonucci and Chiellini have obviously not had enough of uh, spending time together and decided to, to go on holiday together. So absolutely <laughs> inseparable. Uh, yeah, it's just the, the never-ending love between Bonucci and Chiellini. Yeah, where are we going on holiday, by the way? <laughs> Perhaps to a, to a Serie A game, maybe next season. That would work. I can't yeah, wait. Fingers crossed. Okay, Baz, final honourable of the episode. This uh, is an honourable for Italy's answer to uh, Machine Gun Kelly, um, Bernardeschi himself, <laughs> who will forever be remembered as the guy who scored two penalties in the semi-final and the final of Euro, and. Um, Fair play to him. He got married uh, 48 hours after lifting the trophy. I guess this goes out to uh, Bernardeschi's dad, who, while Bernardeschi and his wife-to-be were standing at the altar, yells out, uh, when did you feel more pressure? When you were taking the penalty in the final or now? Uh, to mass laughs from everyone. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, nice. Um, hopefully, he didn't answer that question. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> The video I saw doesn't have a follow-up. Good. Uh, so good good place to leave the episode um just need to thank all our listeners because this is the end of our first season um and all of our contributors in particular for this tournament bob from turkey maria from switzerland philip from wales fabian from austria joris from belgium and hell from spain and finally jesse from london as Baz was saying earlier our podcast gave them all the kiss of death so if you want your team to win in future definitely don't come on this podcast but um, please do keep listening. We started the podcast and first of all, Milan made the Champions League after seven years and then Italy went on to win the Euro. So I think we are the lucky charms here and I give you both an honorable for this. Yeah, well, we'd better carry on next season then. But yeah, if you don't already, please do subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your audio. Um, we'll speak to you next season. Until then, uh, well, enjoy the transfer window or the, the summer, I guess che sta decretando lo scudetto del Milan in questo preciso istante finita la Juventus è campione d'Italia questa data il 6 maggio di anticipo la Roma è campione d'Italia per la stagione 2000-2001 il titolo del 2008 l'Inter è campione d'Italia sedicesimo scudetto per la squadra Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.